thankful that you're here. It's always encouraging when I uh, prepare a message to give to the people of God and to come and to uh, look out and see people that uh, uh, want to uh, hear the Word of God and want to uh, learn from it. And uh, so uh, I am here to sit at the feet of the Word as well. Uh, I am a learner with you, and I hope to be able to share with you what God has been able to uh, show me through His Word this week. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we received a call here at the church office. Uh, I was a a woman who was down and out. She was low on cash. She was uh, looking for some help. And in the course of the conversation, in asking for that help, she asked quite sincerely if we could pray that she would win the lottery. And her reasoning was solid. She said, if churches would simply pray this for me, then I wouldn't have to keep calling churches asking for help. Which would be true. I mean, that's not a false statement. Uh, If she actually did win the lottery. And we could certainly sympathize with the woman's needs and the the needs that she was looking for. But as uh, I even heard this morning, we chuckle a little bit at her prayer request. We chuckle a bit. Because uh, it can seem like it's so missing the point. It uh, seems so trite. It's, it's, it's landing on simply landing a large sum of money and not maybe dealing with some of the deeper needs. And yet, if we were to see a transcript of many of our prayers, uh, no doubt there would be similar triteness in some of the requests that we offer to God as well. We are just as proud, just as selfish, and our pride and selfishness can lead us in one of two directions. Either it leads us where we pray selfishly for things that only concern our comfort and our ease, or our pride leads us to not pray at all. We don't even bother to talk to God because, honestly, we didn't even think about it. We have our minds so set on the things that we need and what we want that prayer didn't enter our minds. And so our natural orientation towards ourselves leads us either towards trivial prayer or to absent prayer. And neither of these positions are pleasing to God. Neither of these positions are what God calls us to. In fact, God wants and expects us to pray, as we know. Prayer is, is fairly natural for humans to do. You read about that even uh, in many non-Christian cultures, right? People know that there's a higher power and that they should pray, and yet uh, God commands us to pray. He wants us to pour out our hearts before him. First Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. Romans 12, be constant in prayer. We are called upon to talk to God, to pour out our hearts before him. Not just in a perfunctory manner, not just in a ritualistic manner, but in a relationship depending upon pouring out our hearts to sort of manner. So if we're going to do that effectively, if we're going to pray effectively, then we need to uh, learn to pray as God has instructed us to pray. We need to learn from those who pray in a way pleasing to the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to learn from a man who knew prayer, the Apostle Paul. He didn't so much teach on prayer as he modeled it. He left many models of his prayers throughout his writings. 
And because prayer is one of those things that is much easier uh, caught than taught, we need to catch what the Apostle Paul has. We need to kneel down, as it were, with the Apostle Paul and listen to what he prays for, and in that, learn ourselves what we should be praying for as we hear what Paul prays for. So let's read our passage this morning. You can open your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 1 if you're not there already. Philippians chapter 1. We read the chapter earlier, which helps us give us the context in which these few verses find themselves. Paul's prayer here only takes up a few verses, and yet it's so rich and there's much for us to learn from it. So follow along as I read Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'm reading the English Standard Version. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this morning in these few verses, we're going to see six petitions that we can learn to pray so that we will have the same gospel priorities that Paul had. We are going to see some things that we can begin to pray for based upon what Paul prays for here. So let's begin. The first petition that we can learn to pray from what we see here is that we should pray that our love would overflow. The first petition that we can learn to pray is that our love would overflow. Paul begins his prayer, verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound still more and more. The verse begins with an and, and that's no accident. He is picking up where he has left off. He is continuing his train of thought. Verse uh, 3 and 4 mentions his prayers for the Philippians. He describes how he thanks God for them and their partnership in the gospel in verses 3 through 8. And then in verse 9, he begins this prayer and begins to describe what it is that he's actually praying for them. What's the supplication that he, ha- he offers on behalf of these Philippians? We also see that this prayer is an overflow of his love for these people. Look at verse 8. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. His affection for these people was so strong that it caused him to go to his knees and prayer for them. And here then is his prayer that primarily that their love would abound, that it would overflow. Now, I don't think that this request for prayer uh, for their love to overflow is, is a rebuke of their love. In other words, uh, it's not one of those preaching prayers, right? That uh, he's praying and he's silently like giving a jab saying, you guys aren't doing this, but I'm praying for you anyway, right? Our parents have all prayed those for us. Um, I think he recognizes that they have love, but he's asking that it would continue to grow. He's saying, yes, there is a plant there. It's, it's, it's come out of the ground, but I want it to grow into a full tree. I want it to continue on the path that it started. It's an encouragement. And so the imagery is that of a cup that runs over. He wants their love just to continue to grow. And so the, the level in the, of their love to rise until it just brims over and begins to spill out. 
Paul prays that this could be said of their love. Now, commentators debate about what kind of love is is mentioned here. Is this uh, that their love for God would abound? Is this their love for other people would abound? Is this their love for gospel work to abound? And I'm going to take a good preacher answer and say, I think it's all of these in some some respects. And I'll explain why. Uh, Paul didn't directly... Uh, specify what love he was talking about. He could have. He's got the vocabulary. But he chose to just speak of love generally. And so, I think we, all love that's going to be expressed in the Philippians' life has to go back to their love for God. If they don't have love for God, then there is going to be no other love in their life. The Remember, the greatest commandment that Jesus taught us was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, the very foundation of the Christian life is that there is an express love for God. That is to be our greatest love, our most significant love, our deepest love. And without that, there is going to be no love for other people. So if there's going to be any sort of love, it has to, the Philippians at least have to have a great love for God and for that to continue to grow. And I think that's partly in Paul's mind. But I think he also is thinking about their love for one another and saying that their love for one another within the body of Christ would increase as well. Remember 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. There is a, uh, a, an order here that there's a love for God that then results in a love for other people. We mentioned the, the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God. But the, Jesus said the second is like it, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. There's a specific pattern there. You have to love the Lord first before you can love others as yourself. True love for one another only comes as we develop in our love for God. Our love for people cannot outpace our love for God. Without our love for God, our love for people becomes self-serving and isn't love at all. You see, it's only our love for God, it's only the gospel at work within us that frees us from loving ourselves to truly self-sacrifice and truly love somebody else. So without us understanding the gospel in our own lives, our love for others is simply going to be a self-serving love. So Paul is thinking that their love for Christ and and, and the Lord would deepen and that that would result in greater love for for themselves and for one another. And ultimately then this would result in a love of the gospel work that's going on in their lives and in the work of Paul. They want to see what, uh, what has already begun to continue to flourish. Remember this whole first paragraph Uh, that we heard read this morning is Paul thanking the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel with him. And so he's, uh, he's overjoyed that they are right there side by side with him in this work of seeing Christ proclaimed in every place. And so I, I think it's correct that as they, as they love God and love one another, they also love the lost and want to see them come to know Jesus. So Paul prays that their love may abound more and more. And I think it includes all aspects of this, the multifaceted aspect of their love, that it would all increase, all continue to grow, so that their life would be defined by love. Their community would be defined by love. That they would be people who would be known as people who love.
And so we can see that the, the love that's in the Christian life, that Paul is praying would abound in the Philippians' lives here, is a love first and foremost for the triune God, but then moves outward and to, for, it's a love for others that they would know and delight in this God as well. Now, love is an important topic for the Philippians, as uh, one who reads the epistle will see, because uh, there were some squabbles that were going on within the body there in Philippi. In chapter 2, he strongly encourages them to love one another and to walk in peace. Chapter 4, he's going to encourage two women to uh, agree in the Lord and put their squabbles aside. And so this congregation apparently needed to grow even more in love needed more love in their midst. So, what does this love look like? Okay, great. We want to pray that our love would overflow. What is this love that we want to see overflow in our lives? Well, let me suggest, first of all, that this love is active. This is not a passive love. When the Bible speaks of loving one another, it does not mean that we simply are nice and kind to one another, although it does include that. And I think too often when I've done a quick self-check in my mind and said, oh, am I, am I a loving person? I quickly go to, do I treat people kindly or am I nice to people that come and talk to me or, or interact with me? And it does include that. The Bible speaks about being kind and to other people. But love is more than that. You see, being nice is simply reactionary. It's simply sitting back and waiting till other people come and interact with you, and then you respond in a nice way. And that's good. That's a good starting point. But love is proactionary, if I can coin a term. Love is active generosity. It's active generosity. And it is that definition that hits me squarely between the eyes. Because in my mind, for some reason, it's, it's, it's easy for me to assess myself and say, oh, am I a loving person? I go, yeah, I think so. But then I ask the question, am I a generous person? And that makes me cringe a little bit more and go, um, I have some work to do there. But I think that's because my definition of love has begun to steer away from the biblical definition of love. It's, it's going out of our way to bless somebody. It's, it's not just pacifism and looking to keep the peace. It's, it's looking to go out and to serve. It's actively looking to serve and be generous to people. And folks, this was shown to us in vivid display by Christ, right? He was the one who stepped out of his world into ours. He's the one that came to get us. He's the one that set aside his comfort and his ease in, in order to come and take the road of suffering to the cross. Paul's going to highlight that in chapter 2, saying that he was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. This is the kind of love that Paul is talking about would grow. To see the Philippians be self-sacrificing people for the good of others. And folks, this is the kind of prayer that we need to be praying for ourselves, is that our love for others would abound, not just being nice and not getting ticked off at people, although we shouldn't get ticked off at people. But it should be in such a way that we sit and we scheme and we plan in order to bless other people. But he doesn't stop there. He, he helps us to control us and define this love a little bit better for us. 
Paul says that it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. This love is not to be simply warm emotional feelings, but is it to be an intellectual love. A love that's informed by truth. These two aspects, knowledge and discernment, are meant to be restraints on our love and to steer it and to guide it in the right direction. Because you see, love without knowledge is simply good intentions. Love without knowledge is simply good intentions. Like the absentee father who simply buys the latest toy at the store to give it to his son when he sees him once every six months. That's love without knowledge and therefore is just good intentions. He's trying to do something good but knows nothing of his child and doesn't even know if his kid's going to like this toy. He's just doing it. I can say that I want to show my love to my wife by taking her to a football game. But if she doesn't like football and doesn't see that as love, that is love without knowledge. That is not love that is steered and guided by the knowledge of who my wife is. You can say that you want to show your love to God and say that you are so compelled to go into the middle of Times Square in New York and get on a megaphone and proclaim to everyone who's passing by that you love God. That's great, and frankly, there's freedom in the Christian life to do that. Uh, But God doesn't require that. If you were to then go around and say, everyone must do that, everyone must go to Times Square with a megaphone and declare their love for God, uh, that is love without knowledge. That is not how God has defined that we love him. And so love that's governed by knowledge and discernment takes the other person's needs into account and the situation that they're in. It seeks to do the most good based upon the situation that they're in. I believe this knowledge that he talks about, this knowledge and discernment, is not just knowledge of the other person, but also knowledge of God and the gospel. We need to understand Christ and what he's done for us, and that needs to filter into our situation and how we love somebody. Because if we only take the person, what the person would like and what what their needs are, then we could potentially give them something that they're asking for but isn't helpful to them. And isn't actually steering them closer to Christ. And therefore, we need to take these two realities of of Christ and the gospel and this person's needs and desires and bring them together and help inform our love and how we move towards them and serve them. Again, this is how we love our family members. I love my daughters in this way. I don't just buy them whatever they want. I don't just give them things that I like. I don't just do things with them because that's what dads do. I apply my knowledge of who they are and of Christ and the gospel, knowing that, what I, 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 that this is what I want them, who I want them to know and love. And then I plan my time. I plan my gifts. I plan my conversations around this knowledge. Therefore, my love is directed by knowledge and all discernment. And folks, this is what love in the church And love out in the world is to look like. How do you love the people in your small group? You need to get to know them. You need to spend time with them. Know what their needs are. Where are they at in life right now? And then take what you know of Christ and the gospel and the the healing power of the gospel and bring that to bear and serve them. How do we serve our neighbors? Those who don't know Christ, our coworkers? It's the same way. We need the discernment to know where they're at. We need to discern people 
and see their needs and see where they're at in life and spend time with them and ask questions, not just assume, so that our love can be a love that's abounding with knowledge and all discernment, not just with good intentions. So the first petition we can learn to pray from this prayer of Paul is that our love would abound, our love would overflow. The second petition that we can learn to pray from this prayer is that our choices would be excellent. Praying that our choices would be excellent, our choices would be the best. Paul prays first that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And then look at verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. So you may approve what is excellent. Paul offered that first request of his love, of that their love would abound so that then it w- they would be able to discern and approve what is best. He wanted them, he wanted to see them have sharpened powers of discernment so that they can choose what is the best things for them to be about. This word translated excellent could also be translated superior or best, as I've already hinted at. And Paul wanted these Christians, and by application us, to be able to discern what is the best things in our lives to be about. So what did Paul see as superior? What did Paul see as excellent? Well, chapter 3, verse 7, speaks of knowing Christ as the surpassing treasure of his life. Right? That, that great passage where he says that, that I count everything else as loss according to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jesus Christ was center in his heart and life, and that is what he treasured, and that was what was most superior in his heart. And so because of that, then, it was the cause of the gospel and the name of Jesus being spread throughout the world that was also superior in his heart. He devoted his life to it. He hoped to see these churches be about that. And that's why he began the book thanking the Philippians for their partnership in the cause of the gospel. This was great on his heart. But he also wanted to see the gospel at work in his own life. And in chapter 3, he speaks of striving forward, pressing on towards the goal. He's forgetting what lies behind and he's striving. He's he's putting forth forth his energy to push on towards Christ. And he encourages the congregation here in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He says, listen, Christ is the greatest thing in all of the universe. And therefore, the spreading of his name and the work of the gospel is what we need to be about. And that gospel must be at work in our own lives as well. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling and strive and press forward for the work of God in you. So if we are to take cues from the Apostle Paul, these things should also be the excellent and superior things that should, we should be about in our own lives. Our own pursuit of holiness and sanctification and Christ-likeness. Our our pursuit of of gospel work in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and through this church. And overall, the glory of Christ in this world. So Paul's prayer here is that the gospel would so transform these Christians' lives that they would think Christianly in all their circumstances and be able to think Christianly at every point of their life and therefore discern what is best. 
Author D.A. Carson provides some questions here that help us clarify what Paul is talking about. He, he asks, what do you do with your time? How many hours a week do you spend with your children? Have you spent any time in the past two months witnessing to someone about the gospel? How much time have you spent watching television or other forms of entertainment? Are you committed in your use of time to what is best? What did you read in the last six months? If you have downtime for newspapers or magazines or blogs or a couple novels, have you also found time for reading a commentary or other some Christian literature that will help you better understand the Bible or improve your spiritual discipline or broaden your horizons? Are you committed in your reading habits to what is best? How are your relationships with your family? Do you pause now and then and reflectively think through what you can do to strengthen ties with your spouse and with your children? Do you make time for personal prayer, for prayer meetings? Have you taken steps to improve in this regard? How do you, uh, how do you decide what to do with your money? Do you give a percentage, say 10% of your income to the Lord's work, however begrudgingly, and then regard the rest of your income as your own? Or do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward so that all the money you earn is ultimately his? Are you delighted when you find yourself able to put much more of your money into strategic ministry simply because you love to invest in eternity? Has your compassion deepened over the years so that far from becoming more cynical, you try to take concrete steps to serve those who have less to do than you? Is your reading and study of the Bible so improving your knowledge of God that your whole heart and worship of the Almighty grows and in spontaneity, devotion, and enjoyment? At what point in your life do you cheerfully decide for no reason other than you are a Christian to step outside your comfort zone and live in serving painful or difficult situations? Now, all these questions are not here just to make us feel guilty and be burdened under this big pile of guilt because uh, guilt does not bring about uh, lasting change. That is not the intention. The intention is help us to discern what Christ would have us do, and that is to do what is superior, to do what is best in our lives with our time and with our resources. You see, we will only make Decisions that coincides with God's excellence. If we are truly loving him and delighting in him, if we've been transformed by his grace, no heap of guilt upon us will bring about lasting change. No amount of law keeping. If we turned all those questions into a checklist for us to do, this would not bring about change. We must first be transformed by the radical grace of God before any of this is going to take root in our lives. Guilt does not bring about radical love. Strict law-keeping does not bring about radical love. And so we must pray with the Apostle Paul that, that God would cause our love to so overflow that we will be people who will make the best choices in life. Choices that aren't just looking to ourselves, but choices that are looking to benefit other people. If we're looking for our love to overflow, then as we present, come to a situation, we're going to be thinking about the people that we're seeking to love and looking to do the best for them. And so see Christ formed in their lives. Our choices should look to show generosity to other people in a radical way. Our third petition that we can learn from 
Apostle Paul's prayer here this morning is that, that we would pray that our character would be pure and blameless. Be pure and blameless. He continues in verse 10. He's just said that he's asking that they would be able to approve what is excellent. He says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul is saying that Christians whose love abounds with knowledge and all discernment will be people who make choices that submit to God and show our generosity for others. And those people will then progressively become more pure and blameless. As we devote our lives to loving other people, and we begin to see that fruit grow in our lives as we give ourselves to the generosity of others, then we'll be able to make decisions that are, that are more aligned with God's excellent word. And, and in that, then we will become more pure and more holy and more godly. It's a refining, sanctifying process as we give ourselves to other people. The word pure here can be translated sincere or without hypocrisy. It referred to, uh, it referred to uh, pottery in the ancient world that had been sun-tested. It, it was, it was, they would hold pottery up to the sun to be able to see if there were any cracks in it. Because uh, the people that were uh, trying to cheat others would take pottery that had cracks in it and fill it in with wax and then try to paint over it. But when you held it up to the sun, you could see those wax-filled cracks in the sunlight. And so Paul is saying that our lives, the Christian lives, should be sun-tested. We're held up and we don't see cracks and fissures in our lives. In which we are beginning to crack and decay. In which sin is beginning to take inroads into our lives. And we're beginning to to be two-faced, living one way around believers and living another way out in the world. That is hypocrisy. But Paul is praying and saying that as we give our lives to love, that our lives will become unified. It'll be sincere, holistic, directed toward Christ and the love of others. He also prays that these people would be blameless. People who haven't stumbled, who haven't, who haven't, uh, nothing sticks against them. Yes, everybody sins. But there is a blamelessness in this life as we live a life of purity and we live a life of confession is when we sin, we're in the open, we confess it to others. We don't hide our sin. We don't keep it hidden behind closed doors, but we're open and honest with God and with others about our sin. And therefore, we can walk blamelessly before him. Obviously, ultimately, only to see that blamelessness fulfilled in the final day, which is why, what Paul points to. He says that we, they would be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul has the long view in mind. He's looking to that final day when we will stand before Jesus Christ and he's praying that these Philippians would be pure and blameless on that day. That is the day of reckoning. That is the only day that matters for each one of us. The day in which we will stand before Christ, either as our judge or as our Savior. And for those who have believed in God's Son as their only way of salvation, we'll be able to stand on that day pure and blameless. 
And when we come to grips with how wicked and sinful our hearts are, that is an amazing reality. That you will be pure and blameless. They will pull out the record of your wrong and it will be blank. Why is that? Because you have the record of Christ. Christ's righteousness has been placed upon you. And so God looks at you as if you are his only son. You have that righteousness. That's the amazing reality of the gospel. Is there's nothing we can do to earn our status before God. We can earn our purity before him in that final day. All of our righteousness that we try to earn and we try to strive for doing good things in this life will be counted as filthy rags on that day. But if we trust in Christ, then we will be pure and blameless when we stand before him. You know, this this view of eternity really controlled Paul. He kept it ever before him. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the here and now that we forget that we are in the long game, that that is the ultimate day that matters, is the day of Christ. But Paul mentions several times throughout this epistle that he is looking towards that day. He mentions it here, but he's already mentioned it in verse 6. Look up, look up in verse 6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's already mentioned this day that's going to be coming in which Christ is going to be formed in these people. He mentions it at several other points throughout the book. You can go to chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul, again, points the direction of his readers to this final day when there will be transformation, total and complete transformation. But even though this transformation is coming in the end, it is still something that is at work in us now. And it's something we should be striving for. We should be asking God that we would be pure and blameless now. That we would see this this godliness in our lives now. And the connection that Paul makes here is that when we are giving our lives to others, we will see this godliness take root in our lives. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get into this wrong-headed mindset in which I compartmentalize the Christian life and I can so focus on my personal piety, so focus on my character and trying to, trying to grow in these certain little areas and being pure and blameless and being unstained from the world and this sort of thing. And that's all that I camp out on. And I think that that's all of the work that is to be done in the Christian life. And that's how I evaluate whether I'm, I'm living the Christian life appropriately. But that's just one side of it is this personal piety. We cannot neglect the love and the action towards other people. We can't just sit at home and be pure and holy and and godly and think that we're living our Christian lives to the full. The Christian life is about a life of self-sacrificing love. And therefore, if we are not getting up out of our chair and moving towards people, we're not fully living the Christian life as God has called us to. 
We, we can't just camp out on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we've been saved by grace and forget Ephesians 2, 10 that are, that in which he describes the good works that we've been predestined to do. We've been saved by grace in order to be about good works because now we're set free to do them in love. So personal piety and, a, and the way that we live towards others are linked together. As we love, we will, we will grow in our holiness and our purity and our blamelessness. And as we grow in that personal piety, then it will, it will change our hearts and cause us to love them even more. And it's a constant cycle. And it keeps feeding on itself. And this is really what James brings out in James chapter 2, right? He says that some people say that they have uh, you know, works without faith or faith without works. And he simply says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. If you just have a faith and a, and a godliness and thinking that you're fully living Christ's life for you, that's a dead faith. That is not a true faith. That is not an active faith. That is not a Christ-like faith. Faith and works, faith and love are two oars of the same boat. They both have to be working together in order to be moving forward. Otherwise, you're just going to be move, going in a circle. And so we must pray. We must come before God and ask that he would transform our character, that we would be pure and blameless, recognizing that we cannot transform ourselves on our own. That is the gospel of, uh, that is the false gospel of works. But we believe in the gospel of grace in which God is at work in us, as Paul mentioned in in verse 6. So let us pray that God would, would cause our character to be pure and blameless. Let's look then at the fourth petition that we can learn to pray from Paul's prayer here. The fourth petition is that our lives would be fruitful. Look in verse 11. He says that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is an add-on to the phrase he just He just gave that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and on that day be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's asking God that these Philippians on that day would be as a bountiful tree with tons of fruit hanging on it. This fruit that's overflowing. Branches weighed down with fruit. Now, this fruit is in their lives. It's evidenced in their lives. It's fruit of righteousness, as Paul says. It's fruit which is righteousness. This righteous living that's found in their lives. But this is a fruit that is not brought about by them. They don't produce this fruit. Paul makes it very clear that this is fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. That comes through Jesus Christ. The source of fruit in the believer is not from themselves. It is from Christ. Paul in Galatians 5, right, speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. Talking about the same reality that the fruit that is in our lives doesn't come from us but comes from God. You see, disciples of Jesus Christ have been united to Christ. It's as if the tree has been planted in the soil of Jesus. And therefore, all sustenance and all growth comes because they are in Christ. If that tree were ripped out of that soil, it would not grow. There would be no fruit. 
And so we are in Jesus. He is in us and like sap runs through a tree bringing life to all the branches and all the leaves. So Christ is the source of this life within us. He's the spiritual sap that brings life to us and enables us to produce fruit. And that is why we find ourselves doing things that are countercultural, doing things that are against our inclination. Why we love when we shouldn't love. Why we serve when we just yesterday didn't want to serve. It's because God is at work within us. Because Christ is producing fruit in us. Friends, this should humble us. This should be a cause of great joy and rejoicing and yet humility in our lives. That God is so at work within us, producing in us what we could not produce on our own. Any sort of good deed that you see in your life, any sort of good attitude that you see, you cannot take credit for. I'm sorry. That comes from Christ. That comes from him. Paul says in the next chapter for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why does he say fear and trembling? It's because, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You should live and work out your salvation, seeking to live consistently with the gospel, with fear and trembling, because the almighty God of the universe is at work within you. Wow. That should shock us and amaze us. Not just say, oh yeah, God, could you, you know, give me some more of that. Hey, thanks for doing that. It should not be a ho-hum reality. This is what should drive us to our knees and thank God that he is at work within us. That he is turning our wretched, stony, selfish hearts to love in greater ways and to reach out to others. I think we don't see this as amazing as it is because we have too high a view of our own selves. We don't see our sin for what it is. We don't see the selfishness that has creeped, crept into every corner of our lives. And we don't want to, so we close it off, we ignore it, and we keep thinking we're a nice person. But if we truly came to grips with how sinful and wretched our hearts are, and saw what Christ is doing in them, we would be floored. We would be amazed. We would worship with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work within us. It is Christ who is producing the fruit within us. And so friends, may you have a renewed sense of gratitude this morning for what God is doing in you. As Paul already wrote in in verse 6 of chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's not done with you. He's brought about some fruit and he's going to continue to bring about fruit. You can take that to the bank. You can know that today and tomorrow and the next day and next year and the years ahead of you that God is going to be at work. Do not lose heart. Yes, those sin, many of those sins are besetting. Many of those sins have been hanging on in your lives for many years. But do not lose heart. Do not stop working out your salvation. Do not stop battling. Because God is at work. He's bringing about fruit of righteousness. He cares more for that fruit than you do. And he is devoted. He has sworn himself to be working at killing your sin and bringing about righteousness in your life. 
May that draw you close to your God this morning, not shrinking away from him in fear, but running to him because he is the triune God who's done everything that you need to be perfected in him. So we praise God because he is filling us with this fruit of righteousness. Ultimately, this fruit will be fully brought about on the day of Christ. But every day he is at work filling us with the fruit of righteousness. So let us pray that God would produce more fruit in our lives. Beginning with today. The fifth petition that we learn from this prayer of Paul is that we pray that our motives would be God-directed. We pray that our motives would be God-directed. The last phrase of Paul's prayer here is that all of this, everything that he's prayed, would be to the glory and the praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. So after praying For much love, much discernment, much purity, and much fruit. He asked that all of this would be done in the Philippian believers' lives so that God would receive the glory. That is his his ultimate concern in this whole prayer, is that God would receive the glory above everything else. And this really is the ultimate motive of every Christian, right? That we would see God glorified. In fact, this becomes the classic Sunday school answer. Why do we do this? For God to get the glory? You know, if you answer that, you're going to win every time. And it's true. We, We do everything. We want everything to be done for God to receive the glory. We want him to get the credit. We want his name to be talked about. We want his fame to be spread far and wide. We want people to be in awe of his great love and his great mercy and his great generosity that he showed him in the gospel. And not only here, but Paul speaks of this, uh, uh, of the glory going to Christ in, in, in already in two other places in this chapter. In verse 18, he's speaking about people who are preaching uh, just to get back at Paul. And he says, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He doesn't care what comes to him. He cares only that Christ is honored, Christ is glorified, and his name is proclaimed. Then down in verse 20, he's talking about his deliverance. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. God, whether you take me now or I continue to live, I want you to be honored. I want Christ to be honored. Paul was such a great model of of placing that value of God's glory ever before him. And yet when we see this, this cuts to the heart of our motives, does it not? Because we have to look at this great prayer and all these petitions that we've already been talking about and say, why do I pray these? Why do I want these to be true in my life? Because you see, sin is very insidious. We can pray these things and think that, that it's by great motives that we want to see our lives transformed. We want to see love abound. We want to see purity. We want to see discernment. Yes, God, I want all these things. But sin comes right in and turns it. 
so that we want these things, so that we would be known as someone who loves, known as someone with discernment, known as someone who's pure, known as someone with lots of, uh, with lots of fruit. We, in the background, want the credit. We want to be known, to be seen by others as someone who possesses all of these characteristics. And therefore, it scraps the whole prayer. We're praying ultimately then through all these things, God, would you do this, do this, do this, do this, so that I would get credit, so that I would receive glory, so that people would see me as great. I say that and I cringe. I cringe because it sounds so selfish and I cringe because I've found those same motives in my own heart. This is how wicked our hearts are. We turn good, spiritual, supposedly Christ-directed things for ourselves. And this is what can happen in prayer so easily. James brought this out in James chapter 4, verse 3, right? He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your passions. You want to spend it on what you want. You're looking to... To please yourself, not please God. And so I ask you this morning, what is your motivation for living the Christian life? Why do you get involved here at church? Why do you participate in Christian activities? Why do you serve others? Are you motivated by the glory going to God for your good works and your love towards others? Or are you motivated by the praise you you hope comes to you. And only you can answer that question before God, but it's a question you need to ask and you need to answer really every day. Because the day that we think that we've directed our hearts towards the Lord is the next day that our selfishness comes right back in and we want the praise for ourselves. And so we need to be encouraged and reminded by this final phrase of Paul that we would hope to see the glory and the praise go to God and to God alone because he is the one that does everything. We were the spiritually dead corpses that God brought to life. We are the spiritual invalids that God is, is, is surging life into us, causing us to walk, causing us to grow, causing us to serve others. We're the selfish little people that are doing good to others. And that's only to his praise. So all praise and glory goes to God. And therefore, our last petition this morning that we can learn from Paul's prayer is really a summary lesson we can learn, and that is that our prayers would be gospel prioritized. That our prayers would be gospel prioritized. We look at this prayer in full, we realize that it's gospel saturated and gospel founded and gospel directed. The reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his life for sin and resurrected from the grave and gave new life to all who would believe in him. And that God has regenerated dead hearts and given them faith. And the Spirit is actively at work. All of that was was an orienting reality to the Apostle Paul. And it shaped his prayer life. It shaped the decisions that he made. It shaped the people he spent time with. It shaped how he lived his life. And we see here it shaped how he prayed. And we would do well to learn from his example. 
What do our prayers look like? What is the primary petitions that we offer? Does the gospel drive you to your knees for your, to your, for your family? Parents, what consumes your prayers for your children? Is it that they would know and love Christ? That they, they would have fruit of righteousness in their lives? Are you praying for that good job and that good career and the good college and the good next step? Does the gospel drive you to your knees for your small group? Do you desire to see these things in the people that you sit next to every week at church? Desire to see these things in the people that you, that you fellowship with in your small group? Do you care enough for them to want to see these realities take root in their lives? What about your friends? Does the gospel shape the requests that you offer on their behalf? And does the gospel change how you give prayer requests for yourself? How often do someone ask for prayer and we find some temporal thing that's going on in our lives that no doubt is difficult? But the the difficult circumstances in our lives are not the end-all, be-all. We are spiritual beings in the midst of that job change, in the midst of that family member who passed away. We are, we are worshipers in those moments, and therefore there are great spiritual and gospel realities that we need to be developing in our lives in the midst of those difficult circumstances. So yes, mention to your small group those difficult circumstances that you're in. But we care more about where your heart is at about where your worship of Christ is at. We care more that you develop fruits of righteousness as you grieve or as you go through this difficult time. And so the next time someone asks you, what can I be praying for in your life? Sure, mention some of the things that are going on that, that you would like prayer for. But also be asking that they would be praying that the gospel would take root in your life and that you would begin to see fruit of love towards others blossom in your life. So in this prayer, we can see that we can pray that our love would overflow, that our choices would be excellent, would be best. We can pray that our character would be pure and blameless. We can pray that our lives would be fruitful, that our motives would be God-directed, and that our prayers would be gospel-prioritized. I pray that this would truly help shape our prayer lives. That it would change how you pray today, pray tomorrow morning. Because these are the prayers that please the Lord and that bring Him glory. In two weeks, the elders and deacons of this church are going on a retreat for a few days. And we would ask that you would pray these sorts of prayers for the leadership of this church. Pray that the elders and deacons would be men who are abounding in love for one another, for Christ, for this church. That there would be fruit of righteousness in their lives. That there would be purity and blamelessness in their lives. Folks, the leadership of this church depend upon your prayers and prayers that are rooted in these sorts of requests. So please keep them in your prayers 
as they go in the first week of August. It'll be a great support and great blessing. And God, we pray that there'll be much fruit that come from, comes from that retreat. Let me close this this morning in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, you are the great and awesome and the holy God. The God who is perfect in righteousness and justice. And we come before you and all we bring is sin and need to the table. We cannot flaunt any sort of righteousness, any sort of goodness that we have achieved on our own. And so we come and we thank you for the work that you have done in us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to stand in our place and take the wrath that we deserved so that we would one day stand before him pure and blameless. Father, we ask all these petitions that we looked at this morning, may these be a part of our lives. May they bring about fruit in our lives. And may our prayers be more gospel prioritized. May Christ shape the way that we pray. And we will seek to give you all of the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.